Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We are turning our attention in the months that lie ahead to the, the finale of the Gospel of, of Matthew. And, and these are Christ's words of introduction, the Holy Spirit's words of introduction, Matthew's words of introduction to that, to the events that lie ahead still in his life, his earthly life, just several days remain. So I want you to stand with me and let's look together at Matthew 25, 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Join me in praying and asking God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We ask that it won't be the words of men that I speak now, the words of a man, but the words of God, attended by this Holy Spirit with his power, bringing conviction into our lives of your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We have come at this point to the final teaching of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. These are Matthew's final words and Christ's final recorded words by Matthew before Matthew turns his attention to the events of Christ's suffering, death, and then his resurrection. And so this passage serves as Matthew's, in fact, the Holy Spirit's prelude to what follows. It is the introduction, and what an introduction it provides, because it casts in sharp relief the purpose and the effect, the events that, 
that lie behind this teaching. We have before us, in the words of Jesus, a picture of what lies beyond all that he has spoken of up until this point. Until now, in this private discourse, private sermon on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, to his disciples and them alone, Jesus has spoken of earthly events, earthly sufferings, earthly divisions, earthly obedience, earthly disobedience, the kingdom of heaven as it exists on earth with false citizens in it and true, with fruitful and unfruitful subjects of the, of the kingdom. But now we come to the kingdom of heaven as it will exist in heaven. Jesus is no longer describing the kingdom as he is up until this point in the Olivet Discourse on earth, but as it will be one day, as it will be constituted in heaven for eternity. And what we see in the account of Jesus of that day, when his kingdom comes into its final and full glory, is that what was hidden and revealed, revealed only in forms, only partially, only through the mists of this earth's sight, where we live by faith and not by sight, will then be seen clearly, not merely by the sight of faith that is spiritual, no longer by the assurance of our hope that is internal, but with our living eyes. Your body will be present on this day. Your ears, your eyes, seeing, hearing, employed, and you will recognize these events and you will say, I heard of that. And you will see it come to pass. Your living eyes, your active ears, your body present. It's no longer going to be shrouded in some kind of future mystery. It will not require the eyes of faith. It will no longer be deniable. All human beings are going to be there that day. No longer deniable. The atheist will not be able to say, I don't believe in you. His eyes, his ears, if he were granted it by God, his touch would be employed and he would see God. And the liberal Christian will not be able to deny the reality of the judgment. The Buddhist, the Muslim, all of them will see Christ as he is, as we now see him by faith. It will have come to pass, it will be, you will be there. And you will see and hear and touch. As John says in his epistle, what my eyes have seen, my ears have heard, what my hands have touched, you will join him in doing. You will touch the Son of God. You will stand in the presence of Christ, you will hear his voice, see his radiance, hear and feel his judgments on your flesh either the blessing or the curse. And you will know then in a way that you can deny now, but will no longer be deniable then that God is good, God is just, that God is. So at that point, the things that now you see through a glass darkly, imprecisely, as though you're looking through deeply tinted glass into something that's mysterious and just barely visible, it will become crystal clear there will no longer be false and true citizens of the kingdom of heaven mixed together as is always the case in the church of christ on earth 
those who truly do know and truly do worship and truly do love God and those whose forms of worship are pretense and hypocrisy. There will no longer be good plants and weeds interspersed. The ten virgins will not all appear the same, but there will be five wise and five foolish and will be visible. There will be sheep and goats. And you can tell a sheep from a goat. They will be divided. And it will be obvious the point of division. Sheep and goats. There will be a visible and final separation. Now the promise of a division of the human race by God that has been the foundational fear of mankind that God will call men into judgment before him. That is a fear that is shared by every human being, even if they deny his existence. The promise of a division of the human race by God that has been our human race's foundational fear and for those who are followers of God, our, our primary hope will suddenly come to pass. The judgment that you have lived in fear of and in the light of will suddenly be there in reality. The King Christ will ascend his throne and the whole world will be gathered before him and there will be a recompense, a repayment of evil that all men have in one way or another assumed and known will happen but it will suddenly be before our eyes and evil will be judged Hitler will be judged not by a pistol shot in a bunker in the ruins of Berlin as the Soviets make their way into the city no far more fundamentally by God, by the Jewish Son of God, before whom Jesus, Hitler, will stand. Now there are two things you and I must acknowledge as we turn to this passage and succeeding portions of Matthew that this passage introduces. First, the events that follow this final private teaching by Christ of his disciples and what we call all of that discourse are the very center and the goal, the essential message of the Bible. The events that follow are the apex of history. They are the very glory of God. And they are the shame of man. Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world, Scripture tells us. That means these events were predetermined before the earth was created. The events, the events that are about to, to follow, that we're going to come to in weeks to come, were determined long before mankind existed. God had no illusions about the course man would follow, and thus as he created man, knowing that he would turn his back in rebellion on him and turn to sin and evil, God provided a means of salvation even as he created man before man was created 
The Bible contains much teaching that elevates man, many promises in it that are for the good of you and others, many promises that are for the good of all mankind. The Christian life is indeed the best life. The Christian life is filled with joy, and the joy of the Christian life is the best joy. The love that we share is unexcelled and unequaled anywhere else as Christians in the fellowship of Christ, the fellowship of this body and of all the church is, is fundamentally wonderful, delightful. Now the Bible teaches all these things. But we cannot have these effects of Christ's resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection. These effects, these glories without having the events that follow in the chapters immediately after this. To have those glorious things, we must first have the cross. The cross is not peripheral, not secondary. It is the heart of the Christian matter. The death by crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the essence of the Christian gospel and the heart of the Christian faith. And from it flows every further fruit and blessing. We cannot have those blessings and those fruits without we first have the cross. And in this day, it is very much the case that the church in broad, vast portions, and those who claim the name of Jesus Christ in broad, vast portions, seek the benefits of Christ's atoning death on the cross without acknowledging and admitting its cause and its cost. Christianity thus for many is the source of a a better, more complete life rather than what scripture first and foremost declares it to be which is deliverance from death. Being declared innocent in divine judgment and escaping God's eternal wrath. This is the first thing we must understand. The events that immediately follow this in Matthew are central and they must remain central. Take these events out of the center of our lives, shove them over on the side, cover them with a curtain behind the stage, use the rest of the happiness of the Christian life as kind of a shroud to cover an embarrassing old piece of furniture which is the cross and you lose Christianity. Christianity disappears in proportion to the lack of centrality in our lives of the atoning death of Jesus Christ, our awareness of what Jesus has done for us. Now the second thing to bear in mind in the months to come beyond the centrality of the cross is that these events that we're going to be looking at do not cast you or me or any other human being in a good light. These events are shameful. They are wicked, and they were not just events overseen by a few Jews, powerful Jews in the early first century. They're not just Pilate's events, or Herod's, or anyone else's Judas's. These are your doing. These events that we're going to be looking at, you are complicit in. You're not a bystander. God speaks through the prophet Zechariah of the day, of this day that we're looking at, that Christ is speaking of, when all men will see 
the Jesus they despised and crucified in his glory. And he says, on that day, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. Don't be mistaken about who's going to be weeping on that day. The people who are weeping are the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It will be the people of God who will be weeping as they look at Christ, the crucified Lamb of God. New Testament and Old Testament Christians, every son and daughter of Abraham, those of blood, those of faith, every beneficiary of Christ's death will be weeping inconsolably, not the lost, the found, not the damned, the saved, weeping bitterly. Weeping because there will come a day, there is coming this day, when we will finally see the weight of our sin. When we will finally know the full cost of what our sin required Jesus. Remember this, because it's not fun to look at the cross, but it is necessary. Spiritually good for you. Spiritual medicine for me, for our souls. It's not fun. And it is not fun because it's shameful. We need to understand this. The chapters left in Matthew are, for the most part, the hardest chapters in Scripture. You may find certain passages in the Bible difficult to believe or accept. You may rebel against its teaching on what women should live like and how men should be godly. You may not like what the Bible teaches about creation. You may find it to be in conflict with scientific theories that you embrace. You may not like the thought of hell and reject the idea of eternal judgment. You may not like it when Jesus says, don't store up treasure here on earth because you like treasure. You like the things it can buy. There may be many things you do not like or accept in scripture. But if we do not like or embrace other truths of scripture, Here is where our our rebellion actually lies because the cross is the crux of scripture because the cross is the heart of the gospel. And of all the offensive truths in in the word of God, none is more offensive than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the heart of God's word. And if your life is not based daily on the message of a dying Savior, if your good news does not accept and embrace God saying no through the cross to you, no, if your gospel skips right over and past the shame of the cross, then you don't really know the good news of Jesus Christ and you do not know the gospel's glory because the cross is the center. The cross is what Jesus sent his disciples, his apostles to carry the word of.
So don't expect the instruction by the Holy Spirit that will come in the coming chapters of Matthew that lead to the cross to be pleasant. It will not be pleasant. Do not look for it to inspire confidence in yourself or to reinforce your your own inherent sense of self-worth. It will not do that. Do not look to the cross for a message of human power, human success, human joy. You will not find it there. But look to the cross, bear the spiritual pain, the shame of considering Christ crucified by your sins. Look on Jesus dying and you'll be made new. I want to focus this week and next week on two essential but kind of introductory, or rather, they're foundational, but they're foundational in the same way a a fulcrum is foundational to the work of a lever. You've got to have it to, to have the pressure point to make the rest work. And that's what these two truths are. They're not the, the lever itself, and they're not what Jesus is trying to say. They're assumed by Christ. Can't be assumed today. No longer assumable. Maybe they weren't in Christ's day, but I think they were probably more assumable in Christ's day than our day. But in our day, we have to point out that these things, which are simply the fulcrum, the pressure points against which he makes his, his primary point, we have to point them out and argue them today. <laughs> The final teaching of Christ, of his disciples on the Mount of Olives, is dedicated to explaining the nature of his coming kingdom. And what is clear from all that Christ has said and what he says here about that kingdom is that like every earthly kingdom, it is inaugurated by judgment and born out of blood. That there is a vast division, there is a vast sea of blood that vast division and sea of blood are followed by a, a, a punishment of eternal death on enemies and the reign of Christ. It comes about through a conflagration, through a fire, through, through blood and fire. The U.S. was born out of blood and fire. The war, the, civil, the uh, Revolutionary War. Great Britain, the, the battles that established Great Britain were, were key, Hastings, other battles. It was forged out of battle. Russia, China, forged out of battle and bloodshed. Every kingdom, every nation on earth is born of blood. And out of the fire and blood of rebellion and judgment, the eternal kingdom of Christ is also forged. This is the great difference between the kingdom of heaven in its earthly form and the kingdom of heaven in its final eternal form. The one exists without judgment, without the wheat and the tares separated, with all ten virgins saying, I'm a citizen, and no one denying it. The second, the eternal, is purified by judgment. Judgment on earth is delayed by the patience of God with us as sinners, his desire for our repentance. So Peter writes, the Lord is not slow about his promise of a coming return, as some consider slowness. But he is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the heavenly kingdom, the eternal kingdom, is inaugurated by the reign of judgment that on earth is delayed by the patience of God. So Peter continues after writing of God's apparent slowness. You think he's slow. No, he's patient. He goes on after that to speak of the coming heavenly kingdom. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth 
and its works will be found out. Judgment. Heaven is a place that is cleansed, joyful, and full of peace because it has been judged. The inhabitants of heaven will have passed through divine judgment. And the citizens of heaven will be thrilled by that judgment. In his revelation of heaven, John tells of what he saw, the desire for judgment of the saints in heaven. He writes there, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, how long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Many people today would say, oh, that is beneath us. That kind of longing for judgment and vengeance, that's subhuman that's that is animal like that's wrong in heaven the martyred saints will call out to God how long how long how long will you allow this to go on and the concept of heaven held by many is a place where almost everyone goes and according to the good they did on earth they receive relatively more or less good and they're in heaven few today believe in a hell a hell of torment It's a concept that is seen as outdated, narrow, unworthy of civilized men. If the average person on earth believes in hell at all, it's a place for people like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, maybe Mao, and perhaps a few lesser bad guys like those who discovered carbon fuels. Right? But the world knows better. The world knows in its heart that judgment is essential to the triumph of good. Even those who say it's beneath us to seek retribution in judgment always seek retribution in judgment when they're the ones who are hurt. True justice does not ignore evil, but it deals with it. There must be a penalty And that penalty must be paid. The idea that justice requires judgment is held across the face of the earth. Every human knows it in his heart. All across the ages of time, it's been understood that judgment that ignores evil and does not bring recompense for deeds that are evil is no judgment and no justice. And so... Our greatest president, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address just weeks before he died and just before the end of the Civil War, said these words. Some of you maybe even memorized these. Woe unto the world because of offenses. He's quoting Jesus at this point. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Now the words of Lincoln. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must need come but which having continued through his appointed time he now wills to remove and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came shall we discern therein 
any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him. Not Abraham Lincoln, to those who heard his speech, to those who have lionized Lincoln for this speech, to those who have memorized it, to those who have proclaimed it the greatest political speech of all time. It was not a non-secular that Lincoln would say, there must be war to pay for the offense and the bloodshed of slavery. They understood that. They accepted that. The strength of that speech was its recognition that God is a God who ultimately calls offenders into judgment. That divine justice requires the punishment of evil and moreover that God is no respecter of persons. (laughs) That the northern states, which did not have slavery, at least by the time of the Civil War, but which profited from slavery so that no city perhaps in the Union was more opposed to the abolition of slavery than the commercial center of the United States, New York, where they hated the abolitionists, were no less guilty in the sin of slavery, as Lincoln puts it, than the southern states where the slaves were held and where the profit was from off their agricultural work. The North profited commercially, the South agriculturally. The sin was the nation's sin. And so the North deserved inclusion in God's judgment for this bloodshed, Lincoln says. And he says, he declares it just as a matter of course that all believers in a living God will join in ascribing to that God this retributive nature of divine justice. The divine justice does not say, oh well. This understanding that blood demands blood was stated as a divine requirement at the recreation of the world following the flood because God said to Noah, whoever sheds blood by man, his blood shall be shed. This understanding is denied today. It cannot be assumed, even in churches. So in many churches today, the justice of God is described as God passively standing by, watching with regret as the men and women he has created in his image go on their merry, sinful, rebellious ways, wallowing in the mire of their sin. And so in the view of men in our own circles like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller, I'm not saying they're evil men, but in this they're dead wrong. Hell is not a thing of God's creation or doing, but of our own making, And thus, it's no reflection on the character of the Christian God. God is saddened by hell. God does not inflict hell. Now, we must understand from this teaching by Christ how vastly different the the justice that he proclaims, the justice of God, the justice of heaven, is from everything that men deem justice today. Nowhere in Scripture is that distinction made more clear than in verse 41 of our passage where Jesus foretells his words as king 
to the goats on his left. He says, having separated the sheep from the goats, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Can you fail to see the obviously retributive nature? God repaying evil with suffering. The obviously retributive nature of divine justice as Jesus proclaims it in these verses. You can't make sense of the chapters that follow without coming to grips with this truth. Three points about this briefly. First, Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me. It is a sending, a relegation. Go, depart from me. A sentence imposed, not chosen. They may have chosen the sin, they most certainly do not choose the judgment. They ask, why are we not allowed in? What about us? They're not saying, I don't want in, as Timothy Keller and C.S. Lewis have them saying. They say, we want in. Do not think that the judgment of God is passive, just leaving people be. It's active. God's role in judgment is not merely to allow the sinner's life to fall apart on its own. The justice of God is not satisfied by your being simply left to stew in the misery of your sinfulness. Second, notice that those on his left are accursed ones. Those on the right are blessed of my father. And to those on his right, Jesus says, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He is actively cursing and blessing. It's not that he only blesses and leaves the other be. He curses and blesses. Third, most strikingly, hell is a place, Jesus says, of eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and for his angels. Hell has been prepared, set up, established, arranged by God for his foes, for his enemies, for the devil and his angels, and by implication, for those humans he sends there in the judgment. A prepared destination established by God, set in place by God, and fired by the wrath of God. Divine justice, which is the only true justice, demands retribution. And all subsidiary justice that is true justice also requires retribution. Does this mean there is no such thing as grace and mercy and forgiveness? Of course not. It is always possible for the person who has been hurt by our sin to bear the cost of it in themselves, our stealing from them, our abuse of them, and to say, I forgive you. But they must bear the cost. And it's not the right of the judge to say to the murderer, 
you required the life of that man. You took the life of that man. But I'm a merciful judge, and therefore I'm going to let you go because of my mercy. That is not justice. There is mercy, there is grace, when the one who has borne the cost extends the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace. But it's not your right to extend the mercy and the grace if you have not borne the cost. And it's not justice. Sloppy thinking in this area has overcome our nation. People are offering forgiveness all over the place who are never the ones offended. Meanwhile, those who have suffered the offenses are abused over and over again by a form of justice today that leaves the perpetrator unpunished, but insinuates that the person who suffered the wrong must accept and embrace the cost of their own suffering and that they're, in fact, the people on whom the immoral imperative of justice falls and of grace and mercy. True justice demands payment for sin. True justice says that the crime must be avenged. Someone has to bear the cost of sin. Either the sinner must die, because that is God's required stated demand in justice. The one who sins must die. When you sin, that day you shall surely die, he said to Adam. Either you must die for your sin by the justice of God or God himself must pay the price of your sin and accept the cost so that he can extend you as judge forgiveness. This is simple truth. Justice for sins means either that you must die or that God must pay the price required of you. So you say, well, where's the mercy? This God of wrath, it's staring you in the face. Where's the forgiveness? It's there. Where is the grace? It's written all over Jesus. But mercy and grace and forgiveness are not found in God simply ignoring your sin. The Bible never, ever says that. Justice does not permit God to leave sin unpunished. The one who sins must die. And mercy and grace are found in this just God's willingness to pay the penalty of your sin, not his ignoring it. So we end by asking if there is mercy and forgiveness, and if there is grace in the just of God, if there is grace in the justice of God, why do so many resent his justice? Why do so many today hurl accusations against his character for daring to sentence men and demons to eternal torment? Why do so many 
walk around proudly and say, I don't believe in such a God. I won't believe in a God who casts people into hell. That troglodyte God of the Christians of fire and wrath and judgment, I want nothing to do with such a God. If that's how God is, I want nothing to do to him. Well, the answer is clear. Growing up, we'd go to the beach at Cape May, New Jersey, and there the lifeguards, as they have everywhere, have stands. They have whistles, and they have a final line of defense, which is boats on rollers that they roll into the surf. Now, if you got too close to the, the groins, the, the rock, massive rocks, the rock, some kind of like piers or jetties that go out as breakwaters into the ocean, they would call out to you and say, hey, if you didn't listen, they'd whistle. And, and you knew that things were getting serious if you hear the whistle go, you know. And then if on a very rare occasion, the whistle didn't work, well, they'd go running towards the surf. They'd hurl that boat down on its rollers into the water and go out and make a rescue. Now, when they did that, when they rolled that boat out, how often do you think, and it was almost always a guy, you know, a guy in his 20s to his 40s. How often do you think the guy was thankful? How often do you think he was grateful that this boat had come to rescue him? How often do you think that he said, oh, thank you? I don't remember a time. Almost every time, they were kind of blustery, and they go, I didn't need this. I know what I'm doing out there. I don't need you. Why'd you bother me? I was fine. The fact that we must embrace the cross of Jesus, his death, as the price of our salvation. That Jesus is the one who saves us by dying in our place for our sin. It's an affront to your pride, to your self-esteem, to your self-righteousness and your self-will and your your sense of self-determination. No, I don't need such help. I don't need it. I'm not that far gone. No one needs to die for me. This may be your reaction this morning. It may have been your reaction in the past. You may view Jesus as a good role model, but not want to view him as your substitute and accept him as the one who died in your place, suffering God's wrath. Jesus is okay, you may think, but this wrathful God you speak of, David, I don't know about him. I'm not sure I want to worship. I'm not sure I want to follow a vengeful God. My God is kind. My God overlooks. My God would never view my finite sins as the cause of an infinite offense requiring eternal punishment. So we see our sins as small and understandable and our offenses as nothing, really, in the scale of things. The Christian God of justice and judgment is a relic in your mind of a a bloodthirsty, barbaric past. You and your friends have done nothing worthy of hell. Few people have. Retribution on the whole is outmoded, unworthy, beneath a civilized people. And so you go your way, arrogant in your assumptions, arrogant in your proclamation of your own basic innocence. You don't need Christ. 
and you go on this way for days, for months, for years, even for decades. And you say, well, if there is a God, he and I see things alike. Only narrow-minded, small people like hellfire and damnation preachers who make him out to be a God of wrath and retribution, view God in that way. They're the problem, but God is bigger than those preachers. God is bigger than his small-minded followers who are so often so very concerned about sin. Yes, I sin, but it's a very light form of offense, overlookable by God, ignorable, not worthy of hell. And so you go your way, confident, impervious. Continuing outside of the repentance that God demands, rejecting the fear of judgment, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. You are basically good. You're the man, you're the woman, and the world is your oyster. And so you say to God, I'm not going to repent. You go on in pride, and you go on and on and on in your pride, and you go on. And you keep sinning, and you keep saying, ah, it's nothing. And you keep saying of God, you're like me. I get you, brother. I understand, big man upstairs. I know what you're like. We have a compact. We see things alike. And you pile up your offenses and you pile them up. And if God in his mercy before you die brings you to a point of humility where you suddenly see that your offenses are real and that Jesus is your only hope and you turn to Jesus and you say to him, forgive me, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Do you know what those years of denial and rebellion and thinking yourself something big will be? They will just be more sins laid on the back of Christ on Calvary. And he will bear them along with all the rest. And you will know the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Have you been forgiven Have you been forgiven of your sin? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you will cause us to worship him as forgiven sinners, as sinners who have tasted your grace, as sinners who have been forgiven by you, as sinners whose sins have been carried. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.